I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Julia Samuel, the author of Grief Works, Stories of Life, Death, and Surviving, at an event hosted by R.J. Julia. Unfortunately, all of us are confronted with loss that we experience ourselves or the loss of those around us. Julia Samuel's book is about as perfect a resource for any of us going through these losses. She just did an exquisite job in helping us either cope with a loss or help those who have experienced a loss. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. For those of you that I might not know, uh, my name is Roxanne Cody and I'm with R.J. Julia's. I am delighted to welcome Julia Samuel uh, tonight. She's a psychotherapist specializing in grief and she spent the last 25 years working with bereaved families. She has pioneered the role of maternity and pediatric psychotherapy. She founded and launched a program called Child Bereavement, and she was awarded the MBE. So I knew that that was a big honor, but I didn't know what it stood for. So for those of you who don't know what it stands for, it is a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. It was a pretty big award. And she is here with us to share her first a book, which is called Grief Works. And what she does in this book is she shares the stories of patients, obviously in a way that you couldn't identify them. And we learn about grief as a process that's unique to every person, but universal in the need to be experienced, discussed. And I think the point that permeates throughout the book is the need to confront pain as part of the grieving process. And I think for many people, when they think about grief, they think the successful coming through grief is avoiding um, the pain. And I think Julia is also a great storyteller so that you really get to appreciate uh, what everyone is going through. Welcome. Really lovely to be here and to see you all. So you organized the book by the type of loss, losing a parent, losing a child, confronting your own death. Is the way in which someone grieves different by the loss or is it more defined by who they are? It's really both. The measure of the loss is the emotional investment, the love in the person that's died. Mm. So, of course, it will be defined that, you know, with with a parent dying, you're always a child, whether you're 75 or 65 when your parent dies. But it will depend on the quality of the relationship, the circumstances of the death, and your own history and your own capacity to manage difficulty. So one of the things I hope the stories show is that we have a kind of default mode that comes into play the moment we hear bad news or difficult things happen. And often our default mode is what we learn very young. 
mm. and that normally, oh well, certainly with the clients that I saw, is wanting to avoid the pain. It's almost like wrestling the monster down and that people would come and they'd say to me, you know, I'm not doing this right because I'm not winning. You know, I feel so bad. I feel like I'm going mad. And they, it wasn't that they weren't winning and they certainly weren't going mad, but this is what grief is like. So that's why I wrote the book, because it is still such a taboo because I think people think if I think about it and talk about it, I'm, I'm going to make it happen. Mm. And if I, if I don't think about it and talk about it, I'll somehow, it's going to happen to other people. And, I, they, you know, the gods out there, they're not going to look at me. It, they'll miss me out. And, but that means that people are very ignorant. Mm. And they don't know what it's normal to feel. They don't know. It's, and more importantly, people don't know how to respond to them when they're grieving. Yeah. And that's a huge sort of incredibly significant part of it because what I've learned over the last 25 years is that when love dies, it is really only the love of others that helps us survive. Your connection and relationship with other people are the supports that enable you to find a way of managing that pain and finding a way of rebuilding your life and living again. Because one of the things that was striking in a number of the stories to me is that when they came to you with the ostensible need to deal with a loss, and I think this was true in each, almost in each type, but actually what the work ended up being about was difficulties or anxieties that went back and the death was, I don't mean merely, but the death was a trigger to then going back to deal with that and then they could begin to deal with the grief. I think that's right. I think the, the thing that grief does is that it exposes mm. the pre-existing fault lines that are in us and previous losses get kind of erupted or, you know, they, they become bigger under the pressure of a new loss. A new loss will bring back previous losses. So that's, it leaves us feeling very, very vulnerable. And do you think that makes it more difficult to get, help that person through the grieving process, that they have sort of compounded issues? It's certainly, it's someone who's had multiple losses, someone mm. who isn't naturally resilient and robust, probably from the way they've been brought up, but it may also be just how they're made, will have more difficulty. There was someone, who, Caitlin, whose mother died. Right. I only really saw her for six sessions. She'd got stuck, and it was by smelling the scarf of her right. mother that brought back the memory of her mother, and that kind of allowed, released her into her grief. But fundamentally, she'd felt loved, she'd had a secure childhood, and so that kind of unlocked her resistance to her grief. But she then was able to release it, and she worked with it, and she, you know, she found her way back sort of relatively quickly. Someone who's had a lot of difficulty, a lot of complexity, and then maybe had a complicated relationship with the person that died. It's like... They have less and less. Every lens of difficulty narrows your capacity to manage it. So if you have quite a sort of straightforward personality and history and robustness, it feels like you have then quite a lot of structures 
that hold you inside to manage. Mm. People talk about grief like it's the weather, it comes and hits you like a storm. And if you have quite a lot of sort of structures, structures inside that support you and you feel robust, you can manage that. If you're quite fragile, mm. you, you kind of cling and you can, it can be much, much more complex and much more difficult. You know, you were talking about friends. I mean, one of the things that I thought was probably not an unintended, but another benefit of reading the book. Now, so if you're experiencing the loss, I think it's enormously helpful if you are close to the person experiencing uh, the loss. And I want to think the other benefit was for those of us dealing with friends who have lost a spouse or a child or a parent, that there's this whole thing. I, 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 was, I was telling Julia before, a, a very close friend of mine just lost her husband this fall. And uh, there was a person, th- there were hundreds of people trying to reach out to her and be Make there for her. Time. Yeah. And there was one friend that was very deliberate and she wanted to have coffee or tea with her. And she did, and they got together, and they'd known each other for a long time. And the, my friend called me up, and she said, it was the weirdest thing. We had a perfectly lovely time. She never brought up the fact that he died. She never brought up. I mean, she had reached out to her. She had made the date. She was close enough that this woman agreed to see her, which she wasn't agreeing to see. And, and they had a perfectly lovely conversation, but it was as if, you it know, it happened. was like Tuesday. So how so typical common. is that? I, th- I mean, people are frightened of talking about death. They're frightened of saying the wrong thing. <laughs> so often they say nothing because they think that must be better. And I think they also think what I don't talk about, what I don't think about isn't going to hurt you. Mm. Whereas if I talk about it, I'm going to upset you and I'm going to make you worse. And what I want to sort of shout from the rooftops is, they are already hurting so much. Mm. You can't make this worse. You make it worse by not acknowledging it. You know, all you have to say is, I'm so sorry that your husband has died. You don't have to have a magic pill to make them better, which is often the other thing that puts people off because they sort of think, well, then what am I going to say? You know, I've got to be able to say something that's going to fix her. Um, And... You know, that's one of the sort of big messages in the book. Nobody can fix anyone. You need to be able to support them to weather this loss in their own way, given who they are. Well, and so this was another conversation I've had. And you said it so perfectly. So I'm reading, obviously, from the book. Asking questions is complicated territory. And a lot depends on your motivation in asking these questions. Don't be an ambulance chaser needing to be in the know. Questions should arise from what your friend is actually saying, an exploratory, sensitive, wanting to know more about their experience sort of question, not an intrusive session in information gathering. So how do you think someone Very really... Very well put. Right? <laughs> we would I would have said so myself. Let's say, let's say brilliantly put. Brilliantly put. <laughs> so how does someone sort of check themselves on that? Because what I have watched people do is, out of their own nervousness, they go into question mode because that feels like... Gives them control. It, it feels like, okay, I, I have some structure here, and they're either afraid to be silent 
or they don't know what that other question is. So, I mean, I think a lot of asking questions is because they fear the silence and they fear what may mm -hmm. come that they can't manage. So it does give them control. And, you know, there's that sort of um, image if you're with children that you should say four nice things and one this you could do differently. I think when you're with bereaved people, though, it's the same thing. Listen four times, talk once. Mm. So listening is the key. You don't have to say very much. You don't just allow the person to... You, sitting with them and having a cup of soup and being with them and watching a film together, going for a walk together, just accompanying them in the frame that they're in. If they're in the frame, like, I, I'm feeling miserable, get me out of here, get me to a cafe. Amuse me. Amuse me. You know, tell me stupid jokes. There was, there was one, in, there's this whole section on how friends and family can help. And one of my clients had had a baby that had died. And her friend, for some reason, sent her clips of men dancing sort of half naked, swizzling their parts. And that, you know, that really made, it was about two minutes long. And Dad, she was the, a best the, friend. The video was not in the book. The video is not in the book. <laughs> Like a little pop-up. <laughs> I mean, the wrong person sending it to the wrong person, that would be a disaster. I'm not saying this is what you should do to your friends. But she wanted to be made to laugh. I don't know. It was their shared sense of humour. It obviously connected the things they'd done when they were children together. They'd been friends since they were children. So that worked for her. Somebody else said the people that were best, she came, she didn't say much, she brought soup. And she just sat with me while I cried, mm. you know. So it's very, it's very different depending on who they are. And also ask, what would you like? You know, do you, do you want me to come? The people that are most annoying are those who are saying, let me know if there's anything that I can do to help. Because the person receiving that is sending now. signals down the phone <laughs> saying, I'm, I can hardly pick up my phone, let alone text you to tell you to do my shopping or, you know, uh, stop me crying. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break from our sponsor. Today's episode is also brought to you by Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps is an entertaining true-life memoir, Diane Shaw, first female sports journalist for a major national daily. Diane details her experiences breaking the glass ceiling in sports journalism and laying the path for today's female reporters. Diane is candid about the sexism and discrimination that she encountered as she wasn't one of the boys. Diane tells comedic, fascinating, and sometimes tragic stories about her adventures in journalism, featuring some of the biggest names of the era. Examples include the time that a tipsy Mickey Mantle tried to hit on her with a creepy greeting card, the time that she was uninvited from the baseball writer dinner as no women were allowed, or the time she snuck into the Republican Party gala. Other famous folks that get a mention are Frank Sinatra, Paul Newman, Dennis Quaid, and Larry Bird. Diane went on to write for the New York Times, Newsweek, GQ, Playboy, and Esquire. She has also written four mystery novels. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps offers behind-the-scenes details of stories of a trailblazing career and the prejudices facing female sports writers during the 60s and 70s. Right now, for a limited time, Red Lightning Books and Indiana University Press are offering an exclusive free chapter download for listeners of this show. Visit iupress.org, jockstraps-book to download a special sneak peek. Feral to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw is available wherever books are sold. 
Well, you have an example in the book, which totally amused me, where uh, the woman had asked, I don't think they were sitting Shiva, but it was... They were sitting Shiva. They were sitting Shiva. So in the Jewish religion, you um, mourn and friends come over, there's food. Unfortunately, there's generally not wine, which I think is a big Big, problem problem with Shiva. But some people sit briefly, and this woman had said to her friends, you know, we'll see you that night sitting for Shiva. So what did two very thoughtful other friends do? She said, that's the time I want to see you, but that didn't suit them. And they said, no, 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 I'd much rather you met me at my cafe at 10 o'clock the next day. And, you know, that just let her know that, I mean, that comes under the whole section, which is it's not about you. It's about, it's about the person that's grieving. If your friend has said, come and sit shiva with me, that's when I'd like to see you. Saying, no, that doesn't really suit because I've got to take, take my daughter to skating and I've, you know, I've got a dinner date later on, so I'd much rather meet you at 10. That is not supportive. You know, one of the... This is probably going to be a stupid question and you can pretend it's not and come up with some answer. I love but... stupid questions. <laughs> But uh, my husband and I were talking earlier today, and, you know, we were talking about um, my coming here. So my husband had lost his brother a couple years ago. I lost my mother, and this friend died. So it's a lot. So I was saying to Kev, you know, you wonder, um, as I read this book, I wonder if we all, if we each dealt with all the things that were going on. So Kevin, who who normally thinks about things in the widest possible way. And he said, well, how do you know whether you've grieved successfully? What is the answer to that question? I think it's a really good question. I don't think it's an easy question. I won't tell him that, but... <laughs> I, 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 think it's, I think there's two answers to that question which sort of sit side by side. They don't sort of knock each other out. I think on the one hand, if it's someone who's been really integral to your life that you've really loved... At some way, you lo- you know, the person has died, but the love continues, and you love them forever. Mm. And there may be times that they're very much in the back of your mind and not part of your day, but 25 years later, you can smell the coffee cake or hear a piece of music or be in a place where you were together, and you get hit as if it was yesterday that mm. the person that you loved has died. So, and kind of in therapy we that's we talk about that theoretically as continuing bonds that the relationship continues forever after the person has died mm. but the task of mourning is to face and accept the reality of the loss and to kind of recognize that the death is permanent and when people are first grieving that you can only do that little incremental moments at a time because our defences of denial at the beginning Mm. protect us, and they're there for a good reason. They're there because we couldn't manage the overwhelming truth that this person isn't here anymore um, all at once. So it is a sort of gradual process, and I call it sort of the dual process of you have time when you feel the pain and you grieve, and you have time when you give yourself a break from the pain and you go to a movie or go for a walk. Watch those wiggly things. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to forget that one, Joy. Sorry. (laughs) I'm thinking maybe you should cut that from the podcast. But anyway, um, um, and that you need to allow yourself to do both because you can't do it all at once. 
you know you haven't kind of engaged with the process where you and you haven't really grieved where you have very little energy for life mm. and that's different from depression it's a yeah. different thing from depression but grief is all consuming you've only got about this much you know small amount interesting that's available to manage because you often people often talk about feeling dead inside or that there's a big hole inside and what the process of grieving does is over time you accommodate the loss so one of the images in the book is that say you know this circle of my hands is the is the loss that doesn't change the the loss is always a part of you because you've always loved the person that's died and you will always miss them but you build your life around the loss mm. and so when you've built built quite a lot of life around your loss and you're living your life you're engaged with life you're loving again that is when you've done enough of the grieving process mm -hmm. but it to some level and maybe this sounds depressing and someone listening was saying a therapist would say this i think in the sort of 21st century we like the fast track and then grief app you know done. you do the five things on your app you do you do these on monday these the following monday and by the end of five you weeks you should be good you're absolutely good to go you're doing the smart grief and then you're and then you're you're sorted check that box check check that box and you're back on track and you know as human beings we're just not like that really? we're not machines mm. <laughs> but it is what honestly the people that i see when they walk through my door that is what they expect of themselves yeah, yeah. and that is the understanding it, the understanding of the complexity of it and the adaptation process that we need to do internally is not understood. Yeah. And you know, I think it's it's interesting that you say it that way because, you know, so much of our culture now is listicles, right? So you you know, 10 ways to look younger, five ways to eat better, you know, and you do you, you know, one of the big messages that I think you deliver in the book is about the process and the journey, not the listicle, not the you know, 10 ways to get through grieving by Monday. And I think sometimes, you know, as I've watched people, we don't really allow people that space. I remember a friend 20 years ago coming to me who had a very close group of friends who were wonderful and they'd really been with her. And this woman called me up and she said, Rox, could I come see you? And I said, sure. So she comes and I figured she must have, she seemed so deliberate. And her husband had died about nine months earlier, and um, she was having a hard time because her best friends thought it was time for her to be done. And dating. And, <clears throat> and maybe, I don't remember her talking about that, although I but will they would say, say... I think it's time now. I, yeah, I would say she got good at that because she started dating, as they say, on a plane. <laughs> Did she? Yeah. But, but they um, talk about it's time to move on. So is there a lot There's of that closure. where people want you to, like, be done? And how do you know when that's right to do or not, to encourage them to move on? Or is it never right to encourage them? Well, there's a there's a case study in my book mm -hmm. whose um, husband died very suddenly in a motorbike crash. And I saw her for um, probably And he two, was quite young. He was he late was 30s, young. right? And she had a young child. Yeah. And I saw her for about two and a half, three years and towards the end of three years, I was wanting her to start dating because she was a beautiful young woman. She was mid-30s. So I was saying, what, you know, what's stopping you? What's... And 
her answer was, I'm still in love with my husband. I've got mm. nothing available to love anybody else. And somebody else who I'd worked with, who I worked with for a year, she still loved her husband, but she wanted to be in with relationship someone. with someone else. She did not like being alone. And so it's very, very... And they're both okay. And they're both okay. And other people's opinions are not helpful. But, I mean, I was, you know, this is me, the open you know, person-centered counselor, I was saying, come on, get out there. And she was saying, no, I'm just, I'm not ready. You know, maybe the listicle that you could publish is what not to say. I have. It's in that there. could be a listicle, I know, in, right? In, in the back, in How Friends yeah. and Family Can Help, I've done a whole section on what not to say. I, I think we should publish that as its own op-ed. Okay, I'll, I'll <laughs> cut and just, paste it for you. Right. I think this would be successful. So there are two questions that come to mind as you were just talking. One is, in a number of instances, you used, uh, helped a patient with by using visualization. What role do you think visualization has in going through this grieving process? With me, what really helps with visualization is that we're so naturally defended by our thinking and so by looking at somebody in the eye and telling them how do you feel and getting them to want to feel, they can feel very shut down. By getting them to close their eyes, mm. to breathe, to move their attention into their body, to follow them through a process of what they're seeing in their body, and that it sort of softens their defences and they can access parts of themselves that their thinking can't do. And, you know, certainly what we know now from neuroscience is this mind-body that mm. every thought that we have has a physiological um, component and every physiological component will trigger a thought. And that the body, you know, Damasio talks about the body remembers, the body holds the score. And grief is very embodied. We hold it hard in our bodies. So getting people to find a way of listening to the wisdom that's in their bodies and finding words for it is very liberating and very and very liberating. And so I don't have a listicles, but I do have something called Eight Pillars of Strength, which is right. I was going to ask you about that at the back, which is it sort of links to what I was saying earlier: is that people feel very fragile and they often feel, often feel they can't hold themselves up; they don't mm. feel robust. And so they're not. I'm not telling people what to do, but there are certainly active choices and activities that people can make that are very supportive that will support this process of grieving and that's why I call it grief works I mean Freud was the first man who talked about grief as work the mm. work of grief and I think that the people that think I'm just going to sit here and I'm not going to do anything they do get stuck and 15% of all psychological disorders come from unresolved grief so I think, it, you know, one of the messages in my book is that we need to, to be active in the grieving process and we need to participate in it to support ourselves to manage it, but also do things that help us express our grief. So I talk about exercise, you know, the physical body. Mm. We hold grief like fear in our bodies and we, in fight or flight, you know, about fight, 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 you know, your body gets heightened and you're sort of vigilant. And often people who are grieving, they feel like that and they feel frightened all the time. And so if they take regular exercise, that tells the body that you've flown and it helps wind the system mm. down where they feel much calmer. So I give them a kind of 
It is a bit of a listicle that if they take regular exercise, I say 20 minutes. I see like five listicles coming out of this book. <laughs> we'll work on this. <laughs> um, and then do a relaxation and then give yourself a treat. That's a really good way to start the day. Mm-hmm. You know, and people find the mornings the hardest. They find that thing of waking up and for a moment not quite knowing that the person has died. And mm. then that awful moment when they really hits them that, that, that they do. And so if there are, I think behaviours help, structures help, that you're not kind of thinking, ah, I don't know how I'm going to get out of bed. But if you kind of know, well, I, today's Tuesday, I have to go for a run today. It help, you know, it supports you to... And then before you know it, it's 10 o'clock and you're in your day and you've got past one of the most difficult Mm. aspects. So, Julia, the kind of loss that I think uh, parents really struggle with is how they help their children when they're little kids. Like I think you say eight is a dividing line of one type of ability to process adult children what do you think are the best practices around helping children deal with the loss of a sibling or a loss of a parent? I think probably the most important thing is, you know, when I talk to, to families, I say, first of all, you're, you know your children best. So whatever I'm telling you comes from that lens that I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you mm-hmm. what we understand. And then you have to make this work for you as your family. But one of the most important things is that children need as much truth and the same truth as all the adults around them. And often parents, grandparents, aunts... Think that's the absolute wrong thing to do, right? Absolutely wrong, because they very instinctively want to protect children from the pain and the reality of the loss because they think it's going to upset them. But in truth, the children know something's wrong. You know, whether they're three or whether they're eight or 14... They either know the fact that someone's died or they can see it because there are telephone calls, there are people coming out of the house, everybody they love is in tears. You pick it up. And so what children don't know, they make up. And whatever they make up is worse than the truth because it's limitless. But also when they find out the truth, that they haven't been told the truth, then the surviving parent, if it's a parent that's died, they don't trust because the one person they believed in hasn't told them the full story Mm. with the intention of of being loving and protective. So that's probably the most important message. And the other is that children need to be allowed to be sad. Often people, parents want to stop children being sad and say, you know, don't be sad, you know, let's do something Mm. else. And we talk about it as jumping in and out of puddles, that you can be sad when you jump in the puddle and be really upset. And then five minutes later, you're out of the puddle and you're stealing your brother's football or, you know, screaming with laughter and having fun so that they can be ordinary children and back at school and having fun, but also be allowed to talk about their loss, be given information and to be sad. Something big has happened. You know, one of the things that I was struck by as I was reading the book and since they were patients, I was imagining since this is the kind of psychotherapy that you do, how do you manage hearing all these stories about loss? And obviously there's the satisfaction of the enormous amount of help that you're bringing to people, but what does that mean you have to do in order to absorb or cope with hearing about all that loss? I think it's two things. I mean, one is uh, my daughter's here, and I am much more nervous than most people. So when one of my children has a headache, I think it's a brain tumour or... (laughs) 
And <laughs> I always say there's nothing between cuts and cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so, if they're late, I think they've been run over. So, yeah. Because that's all I hear. We share that too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 99% of my time is hearing the bad stories. So, that is on one side. So, my, I'm biased. But then on the other side, I do do a lot of stuff that helps kind of rebalance me. Mm-hmm. So I kickbox every week because I'm so passive most of the time, sitting and listening. And um, so I punch this guy every week really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that really helps. And I take a lot of exercise and um, I do things that make me happy. So I never watch sad films. I mean, everybody wanted me to see Manchester by the Sea. Why would I want to watch Manchester mm. by the Sea? So I watch films with happy endings that aren't frightening, you know, with the opposite of my day job. Right. And what prompted you to go into specializing in bereavement? In some ways, I don't really know. But looking back and, you know, as we've acknowledged, I'm a therapist. My, both my parents um, had very significant losses by the time they were 25. So my mother had her mother, her father and her sister and her brother were all dead by the time she was 25. Mm-hmm. And my father, in separate circumstances. In separate circumstances. Oh. And my father, his brother, and his father by the time he was 25. And through my childhood, there were all these black and white photographs around the house of people I didn't know anything about. I knew their name, you know, my aunt or my grandmother, but I knew no stories. I, they were never, ever talked about. Mm. And when I was in my 20s, my mother talked to me about the death of her brother who was killed in Arnhem and she was 17 at a, at a school and being told to be called out of the classroom and being told that Tony was killed and not crying or saying anything, going back into the classroom, not telling anybody, not crying, continuing with the class and never talking about it. But when she talked to me these decades later, it was completely untouched. It was as if he died yesterday. And so she'd been holding all these multiple losses in her system. And I, you know, I can't help but think that must have influenced me. Yeah. But it, it also <laughs> brings to mind the thing we touched on briefly. Uh, one of the patients is named Ruth, or is named Ruth in the book. Yeah. And her dad had been a Holocaust survivor uh, and then had emigrated uh, to... England, and you touch briefly on the impact of the transference of trauma, which actually sounds like something you might have even experienced. So how much do you see that where an unresolved or an experience of trauma of a parent gets sort of, there are permutations of it in the children or grandchildren? Oh, I mean, I think if you look in every family in this room, we will all have a story of transference of unresolved difficulties that have been transferred from generation to generation and kind of recognising that each generation did the best they could given the circumstances they were in. You know, my mum... The environment. You know, she was brought up by a generation that survived the First World War. They fought in the Second World War. They had no choice to grieve. They had no knowledge. They, It wasn't a thing to do. So, you know, we eat, we've had the luxury to mourn and the kind of psychological understandings that they never had. But all of us will have stories of complexity that will run through families. And I, you know, I hope like through a book like mine that it helps people examine their own stories and their own families 
and try and resolve some of those things for themselves and for their future generations. And, and so you've been practicing for 25 years. Why write the book now? I wrote the book now because I got so cross in the end mm. of people coming through my door saying, I'm not doing this right and I must be mad and everyone tells me to get on. And actually, it's just because they're ignorant. They don't realize that what they're feeling is completely normal. But there's so little knowledge and understanding about grief. And everyone talks about the stages. Am I in denial? Yeah. I, and I think Do you people, want to smack Elizabeth? No, I think, I think she was a fantastic woman and she, she had a lot to offer. And I think that's they're very valuable, her stages. But people think they're list. You know, I think I might be stuck in bargaining or I think I... You know, and I'm going to live in denial. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I like it like here. My mum, my mum lived in denial, um, and so you know they want to kind of tidy it and make themselves sorted. Mm -hmm. And it's messy grief. It's painful and it's messy, and they need to be kind to themselves rather than you know. I talk about this shitty committee, if I'm allowed to swear, where people you know give themselves a hard time. You yeah. know, you stupid woman, you're still... Yeah. When they're hurting already. Mm. You know, so a lot of the things I talk about, um, and in the pillars I talk about, is self-compassion. Like, be kinder to yourself. Like, quieten that, that inner voice. Yeah, you had a line in the book when you were talking about this that I thought was, like, why don't you know this, that people, each of us treat ourselves in a way we would never treat someone else. A friend. Right. You, if you had a friend in that circumstance, that's not what you'd be doing, yet you're doing it to yourself, just sort of almost reflexively. Exactly. So I often say to people, you know, would you speak to a friend like that? And they say no. And then I kind of get them to observe what they're actually saying. And sometimes I get them to write it down. Did you ever have a patient that you felt that you couldn't help them get to where they could move on to the next place? I've had quite a few. Yeah. Mm. From... I'm quite frightened of anger, so I've had some that I find too angry and too difficult, and right. I couldn't really be my best self. Other people, you know, all sorts of reasons, but there's no way I'm right for everybody. You know, one of the one of the characters that I found fascinating, there was a young guy with Max. tattoos, yeah, Max, who would, like, bound up the stairs and seemed... Sit like yeah. this in the chair, yeah. Uh, t t share with them a little bit about what he was like, because that was a that was almost like suspenseful the way that he changed and turned. A lot of my clients I see for grief, but I keep spaces also for ordinary work, so I don't have too many difficult stories to try and kind of balance my practice. And he came. I thought it'd be nice to have a young man. You know, it won't be too much difficulty. And he's twenty five. That's fine. And he came because he had a very dysfunctional relationship with his girlfriend. So that felt really interesting. Great, I'll sort of jump in. And in how what it turned out through the focusing, through um, the visualizations, was that his mum had been murdered when he was three, and he had no had no stories, no images, no photographs. He had nothing of his mum. But he went on a kind of Sherlock Holmes mission through our work to put pieces of the jigsaw together, because what people don't know haunts them and preoccupies them until they have as many answers as it's possible to have. And so our work was finding a... He felt that he had a mum-shaped hole in his body that he'd been filling with drugs and sex and running away and not doing a job and avoiding. And once he um, 
find his mum again. He found a photograph, and it was the most touching mm. session, I, one of the ones I've ever done, when he brought a picture of her, and he kind of stroked it, and it really felt like he got her. Yeah. And he got his aunt or a friend of his, I can't remember, a friend of his mother's, gave him some of her possessions that his father had completely chucked. Again, in this hope of protecting his three-year-old son, we're going to get rid of everything because, you know, forget and move on and get over it. Um, what, and he, was, that, he, was that the chapter that there was, a, there was one time where I think you used a line like, which I thought was one of the most, uh, among many beautiful lines in the book about death not ending a relationship? Which I think you never, you know, I think most of the, us think about, well, of course it ends the relationship, but it, The relationship continues, the person is Right. Dying. But that's a very different kind of a concept. You know, there was a book uh, that Anne Royfe wrote uh, called Epilogue, and it was about losing her husband. She had started dating her husband when they were both teenagers in Brooklyn. And they had a long, very successful marriage, and he died. And she wrote a lovely book. You know, it was in the vein of um, Joan Didion's book or Sheryl Sandberg's book. You know, very reflective, thoughtful. Yeah, very, very much so. But she said something at the end that I had never read, which makes perfect sense. She said the she had anticipated what losing him might be like, but she had not anticipated the loss of her 14-year-old self because he was the only one left who, had who those knew memories her then. then. So that that notion, uh, her own notion of herself as a teenage girl, died she felt had, had died with him. And, I mean, that's really poignant and and wonderful, and it would be true when parents die. It would be true when siblings die, right? Because there's a part of you where they've known you in a way that nobody else has, and that identity, right? Your history dies with them, and part of the work is rebuilding your identity of yourself, given that that person isn't there to reflect it back to you. Yeah. Well, I would like to thank you um, for crossing the pond to come talk to us. I uh, appreciate it. And I really want to thank you uh, for the book. You know, I know from almost 30 years of having um, the bookstore that books change lives. Uh, They really do change lives. And I think when uh, someone has a book like this, their lives will be changed. It will give them permission. It will give them uh, the basis to have a conversation. It will give them... Uh, the courage to have the conversation or seek counseling. So, you know, I think of books like this as like, you know, pebbles, like when you throw a pebble in the the water and you don't even know how far um, it reaches. And there are books that have dealt with it, uh, dealt with the subject of grieving and loss, I think, the way you have. So congratulations on the book and Thank you for joining us, and thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. 